wild courage exists to galvanize a generation of men. The tools and courage to fight for what matters most. And tell the stories that are born in the redemption of lives and souls. Hey guys, welcome back or to the Wild Courage podcast. Today, I find myself in Cowtown, Elko, Nevada, sitting down with my brother on our one-year anniversary. Josh, thanks so much for taking the time out of our napping day to do this. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's, it's It's been a quick year, huh? I know, it flew by. So... The the National Cowboys Poetry Gathering has been going on. I don't even know how many years in Elko, but a, but for, a, forever for, for a long time. A and our friend um, Justin and Nicole, Justin Riker and Nicole Grady, yes, um, do this thing. That's the tenth anniversary this year of the Outside Circle show, which is kind of geared around um, working cowboys, singer songwriters, because this. The Cowboy Poetry Gathering has been so commercialized, right? It, it, it started out with like working cowboys singing the songs that they wrote when they're on the wagon or out on the desert, right? And writing poetry and it got commercialized. And so that's kind of what brought us together is um, Justin invited you and I to be on a panel last year at Stockman's Casino, the historic Stockman's Casino, yeah. to talk about emotional, mental health, suicide, an addiction within the cowboy community. within the cowboy community and and it it was so honoring um to be invited into that space and you and I were on a panel of probably eight or so other folks and like we kind of like we hit it off immediately super we, fast yeah we were both like we knew uh i think our attentions were aligned and our message was aligned and our hope was aligned in, in what we wanted to do. And, uh, it's, I, I think you find that in situations like this, where none of us are being paid to be here. None of us are in suites. We're, I mean, let's just be honest. You and I are sharing a room and we got our buddy on a bedroll, yeah. you know, cowboy style. we're doing a cowboy style here. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and there's, it, it's, it's an honor to be on a panel like that where people are just here to help. No one's getting anything out of it. None of us are getting a dime. It's actually costing us money. Yeah. To, time away from. And, and time away from our family and time away from work and, and what have you. And it's, uh, you know, when, when you uh, get like-minded individuals like that, who are all aligned in the intention of just saying, Hey, we got to come together and help this community, like by hook or crook, no matter how we're doing it, it kind of, that you can't help, but to get, uh, a little magic in there to where, you know, relationships blossom and, and, uh, well, I love the, the tension of it all, right? Like we're here on a mission that would 20 years ago, you and I would have been here on a completely different mission, right? Like, and, now to get to be here and what i mean by the tension of it is like there's there's a handful of us that are kind of like easing in this community about about our message and in the midst of it it's like we're staying out all night with people getting hammered and yeah. like 
figuring it out. We're like a block away right now from the whorehouse Mona's. That's like all these famous places, right? Like yeah. that Ian Tyson sang about and poetry has been written about for a hundred years. Like it's so. We're a block away from the desert rose where Kenny Fiedler just wrote a song about, you know, so it's, I mean, it's. We're right here in the middle we're of in it. it. And it's, it's Cowtown too. So yeah. that's, uh, I, I, I couldn't think of a more appropriate place for this all to be going on just kind of the, the the whole thing of it you know no matter what your feelings about the uh poetry gathering are or or they aren't you know or or even the outside circle show no matter what your feelings about any of it there is it's there's some history here some some thick rich history and i think it's uh it's the perfect spot for us to be doing this because last year the panel that we did no one ever tried anything like that in the cowboy community before i was like i told justin and nicole I, i'm like i'll be surprised if there's two people there. i know i was too you know and it was and we had a good turnout it was well received it was uh we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants but uh but it worked yeah well and and the cool thing is is like I invited you to come on the podcast a year ago and we just couldn't get it put together and how fitting that it's here in the motel where in a couple hours we're going to be doing this panel again. Again. Yeah. You and I with some other folks right outside the door of our motel room, like yeah. kind of scene of the crime. Yeah. Kind of so it's yeah. perfect timing that I think that we're sitting down here and I've kind of held off from getting to know your story. Like I love your heart getting to know you cause you and I have really connected over the last year and spent some went through some stuff together yes, and sir. like, you know, so I know your heart, but I, I, again, intentionally have kind of like held you at bay of knowing your story yeah, because I wanted to do it in this space. So this is the perfect, I think, time for yeah, us to jump in. It, it, you know, timing is everything and yeah. everything happens kind of when it's supposed to doesn't necessarily happen the way we want it to, or when we want it to, but everything happens the way, uh, it's supposed to. And I, and I think uh, if, if, if we would have done it last year, it really would have been two strangers yeah. sitting down. But in that year now, it's two brothers yeah. sitting down and two like brothers in arms, yeah. so to speak, sitting down. So it, it, it adds a little more uh, depth and weight to the, to the conversation, which I think is what uh, – your podcast is all about and what people want to hear. They want to hear that depth and weight. You know, it's what we identify with and we identify with that message of like, oh, this is the real deal, you know, yeah. from, from real guys where especially in, uh, in our community, in the cowboy community, that whole, uh, like real guy thing, it's kind of, it kind of holds us back from a lot, but at the same time, it helps us identify with like, oh yeah, he's, he's one of us, he's a hand or whatever, you know, he's, and, and, uh, it opens people up to the message who, uh, would otherwise maybe not hear it as clear or, uh, hear it, uh, with an open mind and an yeah, open the, perspective. I think I always come back to the same kind of phrasing for it. It's like, these stories are just giving guys permission to go on their own journey of like, Oh man, I, I thought I was alone in this and here's yeah. some dudes talking about something that I didn't know anybody else experienced. I thought I was alone. And then it, it just really gives guys permission to like, Oh, why, why am I, I'm like that too. Or I struggle with the same thing. And that's, what's beautiful about it. And 
that's why I'm grateful for getting to sit down with you today and get to know where, how did you get here? Cause you weren't the, the cowboy community is not, wasn't a likely journey for you. No, not at all. The cow, I, you know, it's, uh, it's strange. Uh, my journey is a little strange because <clears throat> I honestly spent the, the better part of my life, uh, and still at the, at, at this point in my life at 53, you know, I've, I've still, uh, have spent the majority of my life kind of chasing the approval of a ghost, my father, hmm. you know, my father was one of those guys, uh, you know, he, he, he was, he was rough and tumble and, you know, he could always get the girl and he could, he could do anything. He could surf. He was a gymnast. He was a biker. He was a hand. He rode down, uh, with the Vaqueros down in Mexico and, and in New Mexico for a while. So he was just, he was just one of those guys, kind of a Superman, like a Superman, like a, like a, like a journeyman in the, in the true sense, you know, just kind of pack up his bags and, you know, whatever, throw what he had in his saddlebags and just kind of end up where he ended up and made, and made it work. And, uh, you know, he, he passed away when I was, when I was still a baby and I grew up hearing all these stories of him. Uh, where did, where did you grow up? I, well, I was born, I was born in California and then I was raised partly in the Sangre de Cristos, uh, in New Mexico, up in the mountains hmm. and, and around New Mexico, Taos and Tucumcari and that, and then back to California. And, uh, I, I would go between Southern Oregon and, and California between my aunt's house in Southern Oregon and California. And then in my, uh, in my kind of late teen years, I started, uh, touring with bands. Wait. How old were you when your father passed away? He, uh, it was 11 days after my first birthday. So I don't have any recollection oh, of my father. I have, I have two <clears throat> photographs. I have three photographs of my father. One is, uh, him standing with some bald face mare and, uh, somewhere in New Mexico. The other is him holding me, uh, asleep in a chair in front of our Adobe in the Sangre de Cristo mountains. And another one is him sitting in a, in a tree in the Topanga Canyon. And that's, that's like all that's, that's it. That's all I have on my phone. Were your parents married? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a whole that, you know, I don't know. My family is very, uh, steeped in secrecy. And, uh, we don't talk about this and we just kind of like, we, we think we, we kind of have that attitude. I, I, I don't have, I haven't spoke to anyone in my family for a very long time. I, I speak to a couple of my cousins, but I haven't, I haven't spoke to my mother in almost, uh, uh gosh, it's gotta be almost 25 years. Oh, dang. And, uh, and, and there's no bad feelings on my part, it's just, and, and I, I feel horrible saying this and, and, and this isn't saying I'm not trying to be disparaging to her cause there's no resentment or anything. It's just, you know, that relationship doesn't really serve a purpose in my life. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I've, I've, I've made my amends and I don't carry a, a resentment towards her. And, you know, my, my perspective on, uh, 
you know, she did the best she could with what she had to work yep. with. And she didn't have much to work with. Did like, you did you have stepdads in the picture? A uh, lot of step boyfriends, a lot of <laughs> quote unquote uncles, you know, and 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 that like lots of them. So uh you know, um some better than others, some more violent than others, uh some more accepting of of my brother and I than others. And uh you know, so my my idea of what a relationship looked like was kind of skewed by what I saw in my home life. Sure. Because uh, I figured the way these men treated my mom is the way you treat women. That's what was modeled to you. Yeah. And it's just like how I saw relationships go. The only thing that I knew was just outright wrong was just like, you know, uh, seeing my mom get the shit beat out of her. Mm. like like to this day like if i i just i don't have the tolerance for it i've never i've never partook in that in my life and I, and i just uh and if i see it i don't it it kind of brings back that trauma sure to where i i i i snap and go into you know kind of savior mode which in hindsight which doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on with these people, probably complete strangers. Uh, yes, there is, a, there is that part of me that like, it's just the right thing to do, or is it the right thing to do to, to mind your own business? I guess it depends on, on who you ask. But for me, it takes me back to being in that, uh, being a little kid in that place of powerlessness and being completely powerless against you know, a grown man, yeah. a six, seven, eight year old Ugh. kid, uh, having to watch this go down. So, and you just had the one brother. I just had the one brother and the older, he, older brother. We had different fathers and he was kind of in and out. His father was alive. So sometimes he'd go, uh, he would go, uh, live with his father. His father had a, a, a ranch up in, uh, Watsonville. So, I'd go up there sometimes and spend the summer with them and up in Watsonville and work the ranch and all that. And, uh, you know, and then eventually about 25 years ago, <laughs> that's how I know it was the last time I talked to my mom, my brother, my brother, uh, committed suicide. Oh, he was sober for about eight years and he relapsed and, uh, his, solution for lack of a better word was to drink a keg of beer stand on it and hang himself oh, in, in his apartment so uh and that was that was one of the many big turning points in my life because my brother was always there for me he was my older brother and we were brothers man i mean i mean I, there's not there's not a brother on earth who took more ass whoopings for his little brother mm. than my brother because one i had a big mouth two <laughs> I was mad at everything. Sure. At, at everything. And you didn't even know why at the time. I had no idea yeah. why. And I was just mad at everything. And, uh, you know, my, uh, my mouth had, uh, this gift for writing checks that my ass couldn't cash, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do so, know. So, uh, he, he got, he bailed you out. Oh, he bailed me out quite a few times. You know? How much older? Five years. Oh, so he, he had some muscle to protect you. Yeah, and he was and he was uh he was this big like uh gentle giant 
of a man, kind of like like a this is probably a horrible comparison, but kind of like Mongo from Blazing Saddles, <laughs> you know, where it's like, you know, Mongo just, you know, punches the mule in the face or yeah. whatever, the ox or whatever. But he's this big, strong, just a hand of a man, you know, and uh, but also like the most sensitive guy. And that and that's what I think was his he like he had all those feelings those sensitive feelings in this rough and tumble exterior that he didn't know what to do with. Yeah. And that that's a uh, lot of hard tension. Yeah. It eventually led to his, to his death, you know? Well, and then, I mean, how did you lose your father? You know, I didn't know for a long time, but, uh, my father died of a heroin overdose in a motel room in in New Mexico. Oh my gosh! And in 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 the it was in nineteen seventy early seventies, you know. So it wasn't a thing back then. And for a, a long time, until I was a teenager, I I was just told my dad died. Like there was never any explanation. He just passed away. He just passed away. They're just like he just like it's just you know, and it's just like one of those things you know like oh people just pass away he just passed away and and the why never mattered and then as i got older into my teen years and i started you know getting into that point of life where where you start questioning things and start coming up against that who am i you know which now i look back on it's like yeah no wonder i felt like i didn't belong there sure no wonder i had no home no community no sense of self constant imposter syndrome like i didn't know anything about myself well you you didn't have a a dad to initiate you in any area of life where a young boy needs a dad to say hey yeah you got what it takes or to guide you or to set boundaries or discipline either way like i you know you know this but i mean the prisons are full of the fatherless full of them that's like i think it's like 80 plus percent of the incarcerated men and juveniles in this country didn't have a dad in the home yeah i mean it's and and the power of hindsight now it's like you get why you started making choices and decisions that you did right yeah it's like yeah absolutely and it's it's funny it makes sense it's funny because um A lot of the the men who are in my life that uh, that I hold in very high regard and that I have a lot of respect for, like you, you know, Kenny Fiedler, Kellen Smith, uh, they're all they're they're all fathers, you know. Like those guys are those guys are like they're fa- you guys are like your dads, like your kids mean a lot, you know. I, unfortunately, when I, I had my son very young and I was on tour and I was an absentee father, I tried to be there how I could. I was, I was, uh, he just turned 30. So I was, you know, 22 or 23 when I had this kid and I was still out running wild and, uh, man to, to watch him be a, be a father to my grandson and see how he makes sacrifice and you know lives his his every 
move in his life is to be a better father to his son, to be what he can be. I mean, he's, he's trying to go, he's going through the fire Academy right now, applying to the fire academies everywhere. And he, uh, trying to be a fireman so he can like make a better life for his son. And it's also pretty damn cool to be a fireman. But is, is, is that mixed emotions for you? Oh, definitely. Do you, I, I would imagine, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like I, I can put myself in your shoes, right? Part of the, it probably feels like you're super proud. hundred percent. Because he figured some stuff out in the absence of you. Because you didn't know how to be a dad because nobody showed you. Yeah. And he's kind of like figuring some stuff out without having that model either, which I'm sure makes you super proud of him. I mean, it it makes me the most proud because he struggled for a while. He struggled with addiction and alcoholism and all that. And once he got sober about 10 years ago, um, that's when our our bond started and i was like okay this is this is my time that's very redemptive too Th- this is my time to get to be a dad when he and and he was uh he begrudgingly had a relationship with me um and he would see it at the time I was, I was still working in, in treatment and drug and alcohol treatment as a counselor. And, uh, he would see all these guys were like, man, your dad's so cool. He's, and like, he's, he's like, what a piece of shit he is. Exactly. He, he was just like, man, fuck that guy, you know? And well, it would get him more mad that all these guys are saying like, man, your dad has really helped me change my life. He's like, that dude's never done shit. It's kind of the preacher's kid syndrome, right? Where all the the people in the church are like, your dad's this and that. And the kid's like, my dad's never showed up for me once in my life. Yeah. I'm glad he's doing it for everybody else. But yeah, but but we're, I feel like we're jumping way far ahead. I okay. want to get back into okay. like, and then we'll catch up to yeah, this point, if that's cool. Like, great, great. Because music has been such, I mean, the big, one of the biggest things in your life yeah. that for good or worse, like made you become who you are today. What, what I would imagine that that's some kind of outlet that you found early on. Well, or when did that become a part of your life or when were you drawn to it? Well, my mom's a jazz singer, you know, and she's a, she was a backup singer for, for a lot of, a lot of, uh, bands. She sang backup for Buddy Miles and she sang backup for, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Pacific Gas and Electric and all, and all this. So, so my house was always a musical household. And man, I've never, I've never talked about this before. And growing, growing up as a kid, you know, I was a chubby kid. I had long hair and I had this real kind of, uh, again, I don't know much about my family history and I don't know much about, um, uh, my nationality. The, The little bit that I do know is that we're Basque and, uh, part native, either Hopi or, or Pueblo. If do I, I don't really claim it. Cause I don't know if it's true. And for me, the native community is something that I hold in such yeah. high regard yeah. and I have so much reverence and respect for, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, Oh yeah. You know, my mom's a Cherokee princess. Like yeah. everybody says, <laughs> like everybody says. So, uh, but I, but I had these 
uh, effeminate features. And everybody thought I was a girl. Everybody there would be like, be like, oh, this is Josh. And he'd be like, oh, that's a weird name for a girl. Cause I was this little chubby kid with little boobs, you know, little boy <laughs> boobs and uh, long hair, long hair, you know, and, and, and just dirtier than hell. I was just, you know, my mom, my mom, you know, like I said, she did the best. Did she travel a lot for singing when you were little or was that one before you? That, that was before me. And, and, uh, that's why I say she did the best she can, the best she could with what she had. Cause we always had food and we always had clothes. I mean, we didn't have the nicest. My mom was a waitress at a barbecue place called loves. So we didn't grow up with much money. Uh, we grew up eating a lot of leftover barbecue, you know, and hence the chubby little yeah boy girl. <laughs> and she and she, you know, like I think she had like uh, like two specialties that she could cook, which was steak picado and boiled chicken. <laughs> I can't stand boiled chicken. I bet. E- even the even the thought of boiled chicken gets me a little bit wheezy. Yeah. Um. But we always had music in the house and she would still sing and do local gigs. And, and there was band guys all over my house, a lot of drugs in my house and, you know, uncle this and uncle that, and, you know, buddy miles used to babysit us. And, and, uh, you know, so there, there was always people at our house. There was always people getting high and, and always drugs. And, and since I, since I had this thing and I looked like a little girl and there was, because my house was so wild, a lot of kids weren't allowed to come to my house. Mm. You know? Yeah, the neighbors knew what was up. The neighbors knew what was up. Maybe the neighborhood kids didn't know what was up. But, but the, mom and dad did. But mom and dad definitely knew what was up. And uh, so a lot of kids weren't. I never had. Friends over. I never had sleepovers or anything at my house. Like, I, I would be able to go to to some people's house and spend the night. And I, I remember, I'll never forget, I had a kid and I don't know what grade I was in, but I was I was still in, in grade school. And uh, they all had dinner at the table and they all had milk. And like when they all went to go sit at the table to have dinner, I just kind of sat in front of the TV. I didn't know what was going on. It's foreign. I was like, what are these people doing? Weird. This is weird. Like, you have dinner at the dinner table, like our dinner table had like laundry on it yeah. or something, you know? Uh, so, so I did, so needless to say, I didn't have a lot of friends. And then I'll never forget, uh, one day my, my brother, my, my brother was living with his grandma at the time and he would come, he would come to our house on the weekends and my brother came over and he had some records and he had some headphones and he's like, I want you to listen to some of this stuff. And he put the headphones on me and, and put a record on, on the record player. And, uh, I remember this music came through and there was nothing else in the world. Like the whole world was gone. Those headphones, like every, the, the entire world disappeared. All the, all the noise. Yeah. And I had, there was this little, that I, I had this little kind of fort in my bedroom that I shared with my brother. Uh, there was a, a space between the wall and the bed and I would lay in there and I put a sheet over it so I could lay in there and no one would see me. And I'd lay in there with the headphones on and I would just listen to these, this music. Do you remember and, what it was? I, 
I remember it was the, one was the first Black Sabbath album, and we had uh, Tommy by The Who, and I remember that that story of Tommy and figuring out that it it was a story. I'd listened to it over and over and over again, and I was like, "Oh wait, this isn't a bunch of songs. This is a story about a young boy who walks into a bedroom and sees his mom." cheating on his dad who's at war mm. and they scold him to the point of where he goes blind deaf and dumb and he goes through the world b being blind deaf and dumb and his, his father dies in the war his mom ends up with uh this guy she was having a relationship with and they start trying to cure the boy they want to know like you know, is he, it, he's, he's this blind, deaf and dumb kid. And how are they going to do it? And eventually this kid starts playing pinball and it becomes his passion. He can, he can feel it and blah, blah, blah. And then he gets cured of his blindness or whatever and becomes rich. And then everybody turns on him. And, but, but once I figured it, figured it out, it was a story. And once I figured out that in a sense, I could relate to Tommy because you weren't allowed to say what was going on in the house. You know, you didn't say nothing. You didn't talk to nobody. You didn't see nothing. You didn't hear nothing. When you go to school, it's like, what are those bruises on you? I fell down on my bike. You know, you don't, it doesn't matter who was OD'd in the living room or how much weed you found in, in your mom's closet or what are these pills for or, or, or none of that. Like none of it left the house. It all stayed in there. And I, so I, so I could identify with Tommy. So he essentially became a friend and I started making friends with these other albums that I would listen to, you know, so I would sit in my house and, and just listen to music the whole time. And it was, and, and, and I, that's kind of how I learned about emotions. You know, I was like, oh man, this song, like makes me makes me sad you know I, I remember my mom my mom had a bunch of records too and i found this uh 45 by a woman named dorothy moore a song called misty blue and i remember listening to that and i was like this is sadness you know, and I could listen, you know, and I would start identifying with mm. that. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to name the emotion, but I knew what it was. So yeah, it was if, familiar. Yeah. So if I was feeling something, I could put on a song and identify with it in that way. And that's, and that's, you know, man. that's exactly why I was, was, and sometimes I'm drawn to sad music because it's validating a pain inside of us that we don't know how to verbalize. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Benjamin Todd is like that. Like Benjamin Todd is one of those guys for me personally. He, he says everything you're feeling. I'm feeling. Yeah. It's very validating. And it's like, I, I, I listen to it and I'm like, fuck, thanks brother. I appreciate it, man. It's like, you know, if it's me and you, I never met the guy in my life. You know, I probably, I'm honestly, I, I, I don't even know if I'd recognize him walking down the street, but goddamn, if he started singing, I'd know exactly who he yeah. is, you know? So what so, was your first instrument? My first instrument was actually, I tried playing horns because there was a horn at my house. So I tried playing the trumpet and let me tell you, it's not easy. And, <laughs> and it seems like it with only three things you need to figure out. Yeah, but, there, yeah. there ain't many moving parts to it. There ain't much to it. But the one thing, it, <laughs> this is, this is my brother. So I remember my brother came home and I had this trumpet and I was trying to figure out how to play the trumpet. And this, mind you, this was the, 
the early 70s, mid, mid 70s. And he's like, what are you doing, man? I go, man, I'm going to figure out how to play this trumpet. I'm going to start a band. And he looks me dead in the eye. He goes, what's the matter with you, man? The trumpet's never going to get you laid. <laughs> and that was it. The trumpet was out. So gone. the trumpet was gone. So I started and, uh, like this was just weird for me. I, I, I tried to play guitar and, and the strings were real small and I, and I kind of had a hard time with it, but I picked up a bass and the first time I picked it up, I could play it. Like I could just play it. I didn't don't know how, don't know why. So you never got lessons or anything. I've, I've, I've had four guitar lessons in my entire life, but no bass. And I had those lessons within the last 10 years because I was trying to actually be a better guitar player. And, uh, and then I figured out, I was like, man, I can actually play a little bit better than this guy that's trying to teach me guitar. But, but he was, but he was teaching me, you know, this note is called a this, and this is a, you know, how old were you when you picked up that bass and was like, oh, this is it? I was, uh, man, I don't know. I was, I was a teenager, you know, and I picked up that bass and I started playing and my whole <laughs> life flashed before my eyes, probably like every other kid who picks up a guitar and plays it. Like I picked it up and I played it. I was ready for a helicopter to pick me up, take me to, to the limo. And I was going to Madison square garden to play a show with my band. And all these girls were going to throw cocaine in their bras at me yeah. and my life was just like i was <laughs> gonna like, be better it's jet planes from here on out baby you know what i mean but uh it wasn't it wasn't quite like that and and the, the, the weird thing was is i loved music but i never really truly wanted to be in a band i'd play in bands here and there and i'd play and you know i played with all these smaller bands and i'd sit in with bands and i'd do that but danzig in, in, uh, when I joined Danzig, Danzig was actually the first like real band that I was in and it happened all by accident. Yeah. You tell know? me that. So you're just like, let me paraphrase a little bit. So early teenage years, you pick up a bass, you're like, it's home. This is, yeah, this is what I'm meant to do. And it's your outlet, it's your escape, it's something that you can take all the emotions, all the things that you don't know what to do with because you don't even know what they mean or what they are, and you can focus it on this one thing that makes you feel alive when you do it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you're just in your bedroom, just I was in my bedroom all just, the time, just playing learning. records. You so know, you're just playing along with records. I was I was playing along. No with amp records. or anything. I, no, we couldn't afford to to get an amp or anything. So uh, you're just like feeling it and yeah, thumping away on it. I'm, I'm, and then in high school, did you like start? Is that when you started like jumping in on some with some dudes? In and, high school, I started playing in some bands, but I also started uh, touring with some bands. You know, and there, so you got good fast. Well, I started touring as a, as a roadie. You know, oh, okay. and and. Uh, and I liked it. I just liked being around the music scene. and the scene because it was because it was familiar. Well, and, you it, know? and and those those atmospheres create a sense of family that that you didn't have. Really, yeah, right. Yeah, and, I would and, imagine. And it was weird. I never wanted to play a band because I always told myself I wasn't good enough. Like I like I I, I can't play with this guy because of this, and I can't play with them because of this, and. 
I don't want them to think I suck and I don't want to have to live up. I'll never like, I'll never be able to live up to anybody's expectation because that's what was just drilled into my head, you know? And, uh, but I was like, oh man, I could, I could, I could be a roadie. And, And once I, once I started being a roadie, uh, in my teenage years, like, was this during high school? This or? was during high school. There, there was, there was a, there was a point in my life where it was like, you know, I'm either gonna go to school and just kind of figure life out, and you know, I didn't, I didn't have any, I, I didn't, you know, have any desire to, I don't know, be a lawyer or an accountant or a plumber or whatever. I was just going to, just aimlessly going to school. I had no real direction. But once I started touring and once I started traveling. As corny as it sounds, I think it was the spirit of my father that that sense of being a gypsy, that sense of being a drifter, like my dad, who was in the true sense, and especially in in our world, in the cowboy world, he was a drifter. Yeah. You know, and once I found that, I was kind of home because for, for a number of reasons, one, I could go anywhere, like you have a fresh start every day. You know, if you're in Albuquerque on Monday and then you're in Taos on Tuesday, it's like you have a fresh start every day. You never have to really get to know anyone. No one ever has to get to know you. No one has the time to find you out, you know, and you just have this fresh start well, in it's, your life. Yeah, it's a celebrated life of escapism. Exactly. Where it's it's exalted. Yeah. And I had and with the band you have little to no responsibilities like you know load in is it four o'clock sound check is it six doors are at eight load out is at 10 like that's your day and in the meantime as you're being a roadie you're still playing the bass and like in the meantime honing was, it in and yeah especially especially uh not to jump too far forward but especially in danzig like I was roadieing for Danzig. My cousin Joey got the job as as the drummer. And he said, uh, he's he's like, you're going to go with me on this tour. You're going to be my roadie. I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. So I went with him. And, eventually, and you're like setting up his drum kit and stuff? I was setting up his drum kit. And then eventually I became, uh, the bass player's name was Erie at the time, Erie Vaughn. I became his roadie as well. And it, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years or something into that, Erie was kind of on his way out in the band and wasn't showing up to sound check and was doing whatever was going on in his life. I don't know. So I don't want to speak to it. He was always a real good guy to me. Uh, he wouldn't show up for sound check. So I would start playing for sound check. Cause you knew all the songs. Obviously. I knew all the songs, you know, and I knew a bunch of other songs where we could just, we could just jam. And at the time, John Christ was the guitar player and, and he's, he's a great guitar player, a great guy. And we would, jam a bunch of Ted Nugent songs or whatever. He's a huge Ted Nugent fan. So we'd, we'd play all these songs and I would just jam long story short, John and Erie ended up leaving the band and, uh, Glenn called me. Glenn's like the lead singer. Glenn's the lead singer. Glenn Danzig. He he said, he goes, Hey, we're going to try out new guitar players. Uh, will you play bass for these guys while we're trying them out? And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, you know, I don't even think I got paid for doing it at the time. Like I I was just like, yeah, I'll do it. Great. So, uh, we spent the summer trying out a, you know, 
a million and three guitar players and I was playing for him. And the funny thing is how I got in the band. We finally picked a guitar player or not we, but Glenn, cause he makes all the decisions. He picked a guitar player and we were, we were going to some party in Hollywood. I can't remember what the party was, uh, or what the year was, but we were going, we were going to some party in Hollywood and we were walking in and of course that, you know, it's Hollywood. So they know who Glenn Danzig is. And they're like, Oh yeah. Who, who are you with? He goes, he goes, me and my band and he pointed it to us standing behind him and we were walking in and I, and I made a joke. I go, Oh, your band, huh? He goes, yeah. Are you going to be in the band or not? I was like, yeah, sure. And that was it. That was it. I was no way. Like that was it. Like that, that was the whole conversation. People get mad when I tell them that because people wanted that position. You know, there was guys lining up around the block. They're like, I'm going to get in this band. And here I was. Yeah. Cause at that shrug. time, I mean, yeah. that, that band was, we were playing stadiums. Yeah. You know? So what was your arenas? What was your consum? What was your relationship with alcohol and drugs at that point? Well, I remember the first time I'll never forget the first time, uh, I did drugs and it was the summer of 70 something kiss was playing at the LA forum, the kiss alive Two tour. And we were going to go me and my brother and, uh, and some friends of ours, we all had tickets and it was, it was a, at this point it, at this point in the world, in my world, kiss was the, Oh yeah. They were the biggest thing there was like everybody had kiss makeup on and everybody was somebody from the band or whatever. And kiss live Two was coming and it was a big game on. It was a big deal. And I caught my brother and this guy, Tony, our neighbor smoking weed. I walked into their house and, uh, and they were, they were doing bong hits and I caught him. And my first, because the only defense, I mean, at this time, at this point in my life, I don't, I, I wasn't even a teenager yet. And, uh, I'd used my only defense against my brother. I was like, Ooh, I'm telling mom and you are not going to see kiss. <laughs> That's a lot of leverage. Like I had all the leverage, all the cards. I had a whole deck, nothing but aces, you know, and he had nothing. So I was, and he goes, you're not going to tell mom anything. I go, oh yeah, I am. He goes, no, you're not. Cause you're going to smoke pot with us. And I don't remember putting up much of a fight. What I do remember it, it was the seventies. So the bong was this high <laughs> yeah. and I was this high. So they had to pick me up to do this bong hit. And I took a bong hit and I hear people, you know, I go to a lot of meetings and I've been in AA for a long time and I've heard a lot of people's stories and I hear a lot of people say like, man, I took that first drink. I took that first drug and I was like, I'm home like that. That's the thing. That is it. That wasn't the case with me. I took this bong hit and they, I coughed my brains out and they put me down. And my first thought was, I want to go swimming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Tony in his apartment building, they had a pool. He lived on the basement floor of this, of this apartment. And, uh, I walked outside to go jump in the pool and I was just feeling good. And I was going for this swim and I stepped on a nail and it went all the way through my foot. And that was, my, 
<laughs> that, <laughs> that was, was that was God telling me this is not the path for you, my son. I obviously didn't listen, but but that was my that was my first Your experience. That was my introduction to drugs and alcohol. And then from then on out, it just uh it just didn't it just didn't stop. I don't think there was ever a break. And it was one of those things where it just, it kind of gradually pr progressed into, into harder and harder stuff and not to go on a, a whole story about, you know, getting, dr uh, doing drugs and getting loaded because, you know, we've all done it, but, uh, you know, smoking weed and taking acid and then started, you know, doing mushrooms. And there was all these crazy pills back then and, and Coke and then eventually heroin. And that's when it was, Heroin was when I was kind of like, I'm good right now. You know, on top of that, it was always drinking. My brother was actually more of a drinker than I was. We used to call him Pat the Boob. And man, he could drink. Uh, but his father's Irish, so he goes <laughs> with the territory. But once I found heroin, I was like, this is. Is this when you were. I was still a teenager. I was, I was, oh, prob I, I was probably 15 or 14 when I started using heroin. Dang. And, uh, and, and that was it. And, and, uh, I was like, this is, this is where I want to be. Like, this is, this is my life and I'm fine with it. That sense of that sense of, uh, I, I now had purpose, like as sad as it, is to say like my life at that point was so meaningless that heroin gave me purpose you know because it gave you something to get up for gave me something to get up strive for, for gave me something to strive look for, forward to look forward to look for find yeah, like, it's a whole game it's a it's yeah. a whole game man it's a whole game and it's and it's and it's 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 awful so jumping kind of back into your story thanks for kind of yeah given us the gist of it uh, um so you're you find yourself in the band you're the bass player for danzig uh, yeah i was a bass player for Danzig, and and drinking heroin that's just part of the no at that point i was actually sober at that point i, I had gotten sober and i was just kind of uh i think i had maybe a couple years sober and uh you know, Glenn isn't much of a of a drinker or a drugger. He he he'll have a Guinness every now and then. It was funny one time we got stopped going into Canada because Canada's just like that, you know, uh, crossing the border. And we had these two we had these two you know Canadian immigration officers trying to tell us there was cocaine on our passports. It's like you pick the sober guy and the one guy who's never done cocaine in his entire life, but. uh you know, I mean, some of the guys in the band, you know, went, went pretty hard at it. My cousin was drinking pretty hard at the time. We, we had a couple different guitar players who, uh, drank pretty hard at the time, but yeah, I, I was sober. How old were you when you were in Dantic? Oh, geez. I was probably in my thirties. I left, I think in, in, yeah, I was in my late twenties, early thirties. Cause I, I left in 2000. So that's what. 24 years ago and you're this is just like crazy because i know you now so i'm like trying to piece all this together like th this is a huge band <laughs> you're you're like seeing the world is it sex drugs rock and roll without the drugs now or is what i mean oh yeah it's, what's it's, what's it's all i can't it. even imagine it's, like it's 
all of it. I mean, the excess is available. I mean, the availability. They wanted to kick us off the Ozfest because we were going too hard for them. They were like, "Wow, these guys are really like with the with the with the girls and the all you know, just all of it, like." the general chaos and mayhem they were i mean that came with it that came with it we were too much for ozzy ozzy was like yeah the, you guys are a little bit too wild you know? so you're getting to like tour with all these crazy bands yeah we toured like, we we toured with with everyone you know and and we had a bunch of bands danzig has this weird urban legend that if you if you go on tour opening for danzig you're going to be big and if you look at his track record in that genre of music and the bands that open for him, Soundgarden, Marilyn Manson, Korn, uh, Corrosion of Conformity, White Zombie, like all those bands opened for Danzig. All of them were the opening act, you know. So you're you're like, I mean, dude, you're like at festivals with bands that aren't even in that same genre so you're getting to like all of it i mean we headlined a festival with three hundred thousand people like it's a lot of people it's 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 big i mean it's super impersonal at that point it's just a bunch of dots yeah like i get i would be more nervous this kind of jumping back to present day i actually called justin uh reichert and 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 i said uh, i called him a I don't know, a month or so ago. And I said, Hey buddy, uh, I got a couple songs. I turned some misfit songs and a couple other songs into cowboy versions. And I was like, do you think I could get up there and at the star hotel and play? And he was like, Oh, I'm sure we could figure something out or something, you know? And he was kind of, you know, he's just kind of justin about it. There's never a definite answer from him. Uh, but, it gave me too much time to think about it. And I thought about like all those people. Cause right there. Cause, yeah. I mean, people don't understand if you haven't been to a show at the star hotel, like last night, culture wall was sitting in a stool. There was people about an inch and three quarters yeah, away from it. Playing. it. It was nuts. And man, that guy's got a voice. It's wild. Um, but so, so, these big, huge festivals like that. I mean, and on those festivals we've played, I mean, we've played with everybody. We played with plant page and we've played with, because uh, those huge festivals are such a, a, a mix and diverse, uh, such a diverse mix of people that, uh, that it's, it's, it's wild. You know, I mean, we, we got to, we played a show and for me it was huge. We played a show with, with deep purple on this big festival oh, and, and Ian Gillen was singing. And that was like one of my all time favorite rock singers. And I remember I was like, you know, he came up to us after the show, I was standing there. He came up, he put his arm around me. He was like, man, that was great. And I was like, dude, fucking Ian Gillen's touching me. Right now. <laughs> How did you know, I, get I was here? like, I was like, Ian Gillen's touching me, <laughs> you know? And, uh, it, but yeah, was it, it was, but you were, you remained sober through that whole part of, that I, I remained sober through all of it and um the in, in full disclosure i remained free of drugs and alcohol but my behavior and how i carried myself was not that 
of a sober person. Well, <clears throat> you hadn't went on the journey yet. You just you just quit using. I just quit using. Yeah, but yeah, all, all the unprocessed pain was still had needed an outlet. Yeah, and and sometimes I think even you see guys get sober, and it amplifies the yeah, areas in which yeah. it's got to come out. And so you're living like even a, in some areas, a more chaotic life than when you were just numbing out. Yeah. I mean, my life, my life <clears throat> was pure chaos, you know, and it was, you know, I, uh, I replaced a lot of, uh, I replaced the drugs and the alcohol with, uh, a lot of sex and, and just general mayhem, you know, and, uh, Eventually that ran out and I was faced with it. I was in hindsight, in retrospect, I was faced with the decision to either like do the work or get drunk at 18 years sober. Cause you couldn't handle, I couldn't handle it. that thing inside that, that thing deep inside that's been trying to find its way out forever is like, well, it's overbearing. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that, that we don't discuss a lot, like a lot of, <clears throat> like we, you know, a lot of us, like for this podcast, like we're, we're, we're trying to send a message to guys in our community saying like, Hey, it's okay to have a problem, man. It's okay to ask for help. But I don't think there's a lot of emphasis put on if you are suffering from untreated alcoholism. If you're not treating your alcoholism and drug addiction with drugs and alcohol or some sort of spiritual solution or some sort of solution or doing the work, you are suffering from untreated alcoholism. Your whole life is still rooted in selfishness and mm. deceit, dishonesty, betrayal, Ma manipulation, manipulation, all those character traits, which we call character defects. You're still acting on those because you have no solution. They're still coming out. They're still coming out, you know, you're still lying to your friends and cheating on your girlfriend and, you know, not being there for your kids and, you know, not trying to help anyone, just being a selfish son of a bitch, you know, and that's where I was at 18 years. And it, and so I was, so the band's going full blast. The band is going, uh, the band's going full blast. At that point I left the band. How did that go down? I, you just had this crossroad choice to make. We were, it was, it was the weirdest thing, man. We were playing our. Dude, I would imagine you're finally making money for the first time in your life. We're making some money. I mean, we were just hired hands, you know, we're making cowboy wages and dancing. I hate to say it. You just, and, and you just got to travel nicer. <laughs> we had to travel nice and we had zero responsibility and everything was taken care of. There was catering, there was after show food and. We had a rider, so all of our drinks and everything. So it was like, and who cared? We were, who cares? We were living the lifestyle, but no, I mean, no, nothing but you weren't getting rich. We weren't getting rich, and nothing disparaging. Up, up to, I'm not trying to say yeah, yeah. anything disparaging about Glenn Danzig because I'll because I'll tell you what, Glenn Danzig. People like one one of the first things people always say they're like, oh, how's Glenn? Because he's got a, a a crazy reputation, mainly because people don't actually know him. Here's the one thing I will say about Glenn Danzig. There is nothing, nothing anybody could say or do to make me have a bad word to say about that man. Because when my brother 
committed suicide two weeks before we were going to go on tour, Glenn called me and said, call management, tell them what you need. I got it all covered. Hmm. So if it wasn't for him, I would, and me and my cousin, Joey Castillo, uh, we were just talking about this. They, yeah, I, I live in Montana now and his band was on tour. And I, we went and had dinner and we were talking about this uh, uh, in Montana a couple months ago that he still has the, the, the receipt from the check that Glenn Danzig wrote for my, for my brother's funeral. Mm. So if it wasn't for Glenn, I wouldn't have been able to bury my brother. So there's nothing like I have nothing but the most, so what, most respect and it, love for that guy. So you, was it your choice to like, I got to figure this out or it, it was, it was, I'll, I'll never forget me and the one guitar player, Tommy weren't getting along at all, but also, you know, I'm a drifter, you know, and I knew it and this had come to an end for me. And it was the weirdest thing because we just we were playing in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we had just played our third sold out night in Dallas, and I was playing on stage that last night. And I looked out at the crowd, and I had this feeling of like this job sucks. Like this is a job. There was no emotion. There was no feel. I was just going through the motions of putting on a show and it was completely disingenuous and completely fake. And I was just like, it's time to go. That you was, just knew in your heart. I just knew in my heart, you know, and it's, you know, I've never, um, I've never been one of those guys who is just like, I'm going to be a musician or I'm going to be a cowboy or I'm going to be an accountant. There's all these things in life. I've always wanted to try, trying to, trying to, to find out who I am and where I belong, you know, and that's led me to working fishing boats in Mexico and working scuba boats, taking people shark diving. And I worked as a conflict photographer covering conflict in the Middle East. I, I managed professional wrestlers in like, what? You know, this, no. like, a, like, 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 a, like a fucking, <laughs> like, like some weird carny just kind of jumping around, you know, doing all this stuff, but basically just being a drifter. But you knew that night when you walked off that stage. I knew that night that when was I, walked, it. I walked off that stage. I was and like, you went and told the guy, like, I'm, we, I gotta be done. That was the, that was the last night of the tour. And we went home and, uh, I called our manager and I said, Hey, I'm not, I'm not coming back. And I was like, there's, you know, no hard feelings or nothing. Like my heart's just not in it. And there should be, there's a million people who would want that job, you know? Um, and there's, there's a million people who would do a better job than I was doing, you know? And, and, you know, as much as Glenn and I argued and and we butted heads and stuff, uh, we were always friends and I always, I, 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 I hold him in the highest respect and I wanted to do a good job for him. And I knew that I wasn't because I just didn't care at that point. Yeah. I was just like, I'm getting a check and I'm probably going to get laid after the show and that's it. But it was just like meaningless. All of it. It, it, it all, it all meant nothing. You know, it all meant nothing in it. And, uh, so I left and I went like on this, on this journey and eventually, you know, doing all this stuff. And eventually I found myself 18 years sober suffering severely from untreated alcoholism there was no uh the pain didn't go away just because you got sober the pain did not yeah, go away that's 
that's the message. Like that's yeah. the theme, right? That I think that I, I haven't talked about on, on here with anyone before. Cause we all know the term dry drunks, right? Yeah. Like I, I've said this on here before, but dude, I, I never put a gun in my mouth till I quit drinking. Same ever. It because was, I didn't have any, I wasn't dealing with anything. And then it was like the flood of like dealing with all of the, the unprocessed pain. Like I wasn't anesthetizing it anymore. And that's when it's like, Oh crap. Yeah. And you kind of like, cause we always replace something when we quit something. Right. Yeah. And you replace like <clears throat> that, the drugs and alcohol with something else and still on the run right from it and with and which it, you replace yeah you when just it, keep, when the sex stops yep. working you start gambling when the gambling starts working you stop eating where you start eating or you start doing this or you start doing that so so we're always replacing it <laughs> with never, unhealthy things never do we stop and we say what is the root of this that's it what's the root of it why do i do the things that i do why do i do the things that i do because it all starts with us which is a hard thing to look at because I have all these factors in my life that I could use as an excuse. My father ODing when I was young, abandoned me. My brother abandoned me when he committed suicide. Mom my, was never there. My mom was never there. She abandoned me when she gave me up for adoption when I was a, when I was a teenager. And so the narrative is, is like, I'm not really worthy of love of. So what's the point? Yeah. Like if my own mom. <clears throat> the one that's supposed to. The one that's supposed yeah. to is going to give me away to another family if my dad decided to check out if my brother left me it was never about like man my brother had so much pain yeah so much shit that he dealt with because he took a lot of beatings in the household for me mm -hmm. you know because if any of those boyfriends or uncles or anything tried to tried to come after me he'd be on them like a bull you know and he'd always take it gladly take it mm -hmm. he would do anything anything to protect me and when he was gone when when he took his life i had nothing and i i i, I had to go through a lot of work and a lot of writing and a lot of therapy about that because when he died it was all about me never did i take out the time to honor his death mm -hmm. i mean i buried him and i went on tour we played a cup we played a song for him that night we dedicated a show to him that night and and on to the next thing on to the next thing man and i never took the time to honor him or to you know and now my relationship with my brother it's like it's funny last night i was standing there i was like man i was like i was it was crowded i was packed it was just you know it's the star hotel it's assholes to elbows and everybody's just you know whatever and and i was like oh man he would hate this he would hate the cowboy scene he would just walk in here and be like, you ain't no cowboy. You know, like, <laughs> you know, so, but, but so, so I think in terms of him like that, but I, I, I never did the work. So I was always, all roads led to me, all roads. It was, it was always like what everything was done to me. Well, I think, I mean, that's the, the victim mentality that we, yeah, the narrative that we really buy into. And, and it's the tricky part about that is, is like, it's not wrong. It's not. It's all valid. That's the that's why that's why most people can't get out of it, right? Yeah. Of the victim kind of mentality is because you have proof. Yeah. Of your life experience 
that actually happened. Yeah. To validate why you feel that way. Oh, man, you have all the evidence. Yeah. You have everything right there. And you're like, this is why it's because of this. You know, but at some point you have to, even if you can just take the slightest bit of accountability and responsibility and say, hey, brother, I need some help, man. Well, it's empowering. It's opposite of what we think it will be. Yeah. Because the thing that we don't look at is we are surrounded by people who will help us, who will carry us when we can't carry ourselves, who will pick us up. Shit, you did it for me this summer when I was Mm. going through that breakup. I was crushed, man. Yeah, you were. I was crushed, you know. You're the one who helped me see Mm. that I need to be, I'm now from where I sit, I'm so grateful to that woman who taught me so much about myself that I never would have learned that now I have these lessons and I'm like, wow, man, I actually have some tools in a relationship to take in the next relationship with me. Dude, that's like the opposite of victimhood. Yeah. This, this is just living proof of the journey. Yeah. Right. Because something very painful and heartbreaking in the moment. And now you have gratitude for that whole situation, by the way, which wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Because instead of taking all the bondage, garbage, baggage into the next relationship, you're setting yourself up for more success, which is the whole empowering part of vulnerability and um, not being a victim. The thing is, I never wanted to be in a relationship ever until that relationship ended. Because I'm selfish with my time and I don't want to have to consider someone else's feelings. If I say, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm going to go work at the diamond cross for grant. You know, it just, I can just pack up, pack up a truck and go. My dog don't care. She's going to get in the truck and go, you know, I don't want to have to say like, you know, consider someone else's feelings. I'm like, what are you going to, what do you want to eat for dinner? You know, well, it's hard to read rewire our thought process and thinking when you're have to consider somebody else in the picture. But I want to jump, kind of jump back to you had 18 years of sobriety. You said I had 18 years of sobriety and there was, here's the thing. Also, you know, another thing is because I've heard so many people's stories, just even just sitting in AA meetings or on podcasts or something, there's this defining moment that happened. I lost my job or my girlfriend left me or I got bucked off and, you know, the boss fired me, you know, whatever, whatever happens, you know, there's always some defining moment where it was like, I, you know, I had to drink, you know, or I just got a drink. I just said, screw it. You know, my girlfriend left my life's over. I'm going to drink or whatever, whatever it is, these big moments that we have. I had none of those What happened to me is I had 18 years sober. I was struggling from, I didn't know it at the time that I was suffering from untreated alcoholism. A friend of mine called me and he said, Hey, we're going to go out and have wine with dinner. Do you want to go? And I said, sure. That was it. Did you knowing that like, Oh yeah, I got 18 years. I can have a glass of wine and be fine. Or you didn't even think about it. That's what I thought. I was like, and I, I gave myself all these like, well, I was I was young when I got sober and, <clears throat> you know, cause I got sober at 20 and I didn't have the, when I got sober at 20, I didn't have the, I, I was, I just got out of jail for possession of heroin charge. 
And I went to a meeting and somehow just ended up with 18 years sober. Like that's. Dang, that, that doesn't happen usually. It doesn't, it, but, but it happened. You know, in the beginning I did, I did some of the stuff and, you know, I was really into it, but it just kind of happened. I didn't, I didn't, there wasn't a lot of effort in it, but also none of my alcoholic behavior stopped except for the substance. Yeah. That was the only thing that, that changed in my life. You know, I was still lying. Still angry. I was still lying. I was still angry. I was still cheating. I was still stealing from my friends. I was still betraying everyone's trust. I was still doing all that stuff, but I just wasn't drinking. So none of that really changed. I was still, you know, just kind of validating who I thought I was, who this, I, I had this idea of who I was. So when at 18 years, when that question was posed to me, I said, I said, sure, you know, yeah, I'll go. And I told myself like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a man now, you know, I don't even know what that meant. Like, I, you know, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I paid my cable bill on yeah, time or something. For once in a row. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For one time, you know, I was like, man, I wasn't late on my electricity bill this month. I didn't let the bill go pink, you know, or, or something. So, yeah. so I had, you know, I was young, I'm a man and I'm blah, blah, blah. And this and that. And I said, sure. And I know there's a lot of people that come on this show and we all kind of have a bit of a different background on how we got sober, why we got sober or, or, or what we do to stay sober. And this is just my story. I'm not saying it for anyone who's listening. I'm not saying this is the only way that works. This is just my experience and what worked for me as Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what worked for me. No, not saying anyone else is doing it wrong or anyone else is doing it better. I don't, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're struggling, I don't give a shit what you try or what you do. Try something. Yeah. I don't care what it is. You know, you could go live on a kibbutz for all I care. Go sit on the top of a mountain in Tibet. I don't, if it's, if it's going to work, if it's going to help, it's going to get you started. Go do it. Do it. So. The big book of alcoholics, not so. Did you have the drink of wine? Oh yes. And then another. Oh oh, I drink, I'll tell the story, but let, but let I'll tell okay because it's because yeah. it's funny. But but let me tell this. So so um so I had the, I made the conscious decision to have a drink with these guys to go out and have. Uh, we were going to some tapas bar, and uh, we were going to have you know tapas and wine. Like I was like a some sort of aristocrat, like an art <laughs> critic or something. And, uh, and, uh, I called some friends of mine that I knew from AA. And here's two things that get said in AA a lot that, uh, that kind of bug me. One is people say the definition of insanity is making the same mistake over and over again and expecting different results. That's not the definition of insanity. Someone said that. They tried to say that Albert Einstein said it. And Albert Einstein said, I did not say that because it's not true. The definition of insanity is the inability to see the truth. Hmm. So I called some of my friends in AA and I said, hey, I've made the dis this decision. I'm going to go out and have some drinks with dinner tonight. And I said, but don't worry because if things get bad, I know where to go. Now, in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it defines an alcoholic by someone who has lost the ability to control their drinking. So we are powerless over alcohol. 
So after identifying as an alcoholic, as defined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, me calling someone and saying, don't worry if it gets bad, I know where to go, implies that I have the power and control and control to stop. And you know, as well as I do, once we have that drink, who knows where it's going to stop. And pardon my language, but I always tell people like active alcoholism and addiction is like getting fucked by a gorilla. You're done when the gorilla's done. <laughs> you know, like, like that's, that's how it is. So by saying that I had that choice was actually insane because it was not the truth. So at that time in my, it, I was insane suffering from untreated, untreated alcoholism. So I had no choice but to drink. And I went out and I drank that night. And like I said, I got sober young and, uh, I grew up real poor. You know, the last time I had wine, it had a screw top on it. It was probably, I don't know. Boone's farm or something nice. Boone's farm or Richard's wild Irish Rose. Mad dog or, 2020. Yeah. One of those, you know, uh, so I go to dinner and the first thing that happened, and this is the worst thing that could happen to someone like me is the waitress challenged my ego. She came up and she said, can we take your order? And we ordered some tapas. Yeah, we'll have some pescadillos and some gazpacho and this and that. I'll take a bottle of wine. And she looks at me and she goes, what kind of wine would you like, sir? In front of all my friends, I was challenged. Like, like, like she challenged me to the death. I would have fought this woman to the death. <laughs> she was a mean ass Spanish woman. She probably would have won, which would have been far more embarrassing. But I looked her dead in the eye and I promise you, I went just like this. I looked at her and I go, the best kind. And I put my hand, I did that thing. I don't know what that means, but I did that <laughs> thing with the hand and uh, very sophisticated, very sophisticated, very posh move. And uh, she brought me wine. And the first I drank that wine. And the first thing that I learned is I do not like the taste of wine. That was my first experience. I drank the whole bottle just to be sure. And we drank it. We went and we went bar hopping and we were all out hooting and hollering. Everyone's having the time of their life. And I drank alcoholically. I was doing tequila shots and drinking beers and doing all this and just kind of mixing all my booze and doing all that. And I remember walking down the street with some friends of mine and everyone's having the time of their life. And I was sober as a judge. And the only thing I could think is this is going to end bad. Six weeks later, I was in a coma for five days from a drug overdose. What? Yeah. That fast. That fast. And heroin? Uh, heroin and Coke, yeah. And um, to make a long story short, I got out of that coma, and my first thought was, I detox now, so I'm going to be good. I went back home, and I started using again. I was intravenously using cocaine. And I, I shot some Coke and my body locked up and my jaw locked up and I, and I started convulsing and I started trying to pray and I couldn't remember any prayers. I couldn't think of them. I couldn't say the serenity prayer. I couldn't say 
it, the Lord's prayer, the St. Francis prayer, nothing. I couldn't say any prayers. The only word, and this is, and I, and I'll say this, I'm not a religious man. I'm a spiritual man. I kind of pick a little bit from everything and I, and, and I take what I think applies and what I like, I take from the great spirit and, you know, the spirit of turtle Island. And I take some stuff from, you know, some stuff from the Bible and some stuff from the Quran and some stuff from Buddha and some stuff. And also, I mean, there's also a part of me that's kind of hedging my bets. Cause I don't know who's the right one, but also I know that there is something there. I just don't know what it is. And I don't know if anybody necessarily has a monopoly on it. But I will say this, the only words I could say was, God, please help me, and I will go back to meetings. And God is my witness. Everything stopped. And I called my cousin, Joey, the same cousin from, from uh, the drummer, and I said, hey, if you don't get me on a plane somewhere tonight, I'll be dead in the morning. And they flew me out to my friend, Phil Cavano, who's a, one of the guitar players from Monster Magnet. He lives in a little town called Shrewsbank, uh, Shrewsbury, New Jersey, in Monmouth County, New Jersey. They flew me out to his house and I detoxed. And I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with him. And I, they were doing a reading and they said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And I knew I was so far off the path. But also, for the first time in my life, I had this sense of fear and dread that I wasn't going to make it, that I, I, I squandered my 18 years, that I'm never going to be able to get it back. And that I was just going to like, that was going to be my life. Drugs and alcohol was going to be my life. And the way I was going to help people was I was going to be that cautionary tale. Don't be like Josh, mm. you know, but at the same time, I got some hope. And this woman named Maria, who adopted me and took me in when I, when I was a kid, and who, who, who I call mom, what all true cowboys and all true tough guys and all true gangsters do when they're in trouble, they call their mom. And I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. And I don't know what God's will is for me. And, I, and I'm scared I'm not going to make it. And she said, well, baby, I will tell you this. <clears throat> she said, she said, I don't know what God's will is for you, but I know that God's will for me is not to bury my favorite son. And for the first time in my life, I heard someone love me. For the first time in my life, I heard that someone cared. Like it, it, it all made sense. And I saw all these points in my life where people had loved me, starting with my Aunt Dini, my dad's sister, who has never been anything but the sweetest, amazing, most beautiful woman to me ever. She's the closest thing I have to mom, probably the only family member I, I, I talk to in my family. And I saw how my brother loved me and how he protected me. And I saw how my cousin loved me 
and he bought me a plane ticket. And he first, he flew me to Seattle to see my other cousin whose husband is a doctor. And they, they said, the only, the only way we'll fly you out is if James can come up here and give you a medical, uh, and just see, see how you're doing. And I saw how my friend Phil loved me and picked me up at the airport and took me to his mom's house to detox. And it was at that moment, even after all those years that I actually felt worthy of having a good life and having a shot at this. And I told myself right then and there, I said, no matter how scared I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give up on this. I'm just not. And again, I got on my knees and I said, I don't know who is out there. I don't know if anything is out there, but if you are, please hear me. I need your fucking help and I need it right fucking now. Those are my exact words. And I've been sober ever since. And I've had a good life and I've done a lot of work. How long ago was that? That was 17 <clears throat> years ago. And I finally found that I still have that spirit that drifter spirit and gypsy spirit and moving around and doing stuff. But, and I've done a lot of things since then. I've been a conflict photographer. I've, you know, covered the Egyptian revolution. I've covered two wars in Gaza. I've covered a war in Syria. I've been to Rojava. I've been to Iraq. I've been Afghanistan. I've been all these places. And, you know, I've worked on boats and I've, you know, been cowboying and doing all that. And, uh, but I found that the thing that makes me happiest and the thing that I'm actually the best at, the one thing that I could call my own, that I can be like, I'm good at this. Like some guys are just like, I can rope. And some guys like David Simmons, I feel like you could throw him anything and he can make you something beautiful. Yeah. And I resent him for it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I resent him for it. But you could just tell like he's like his hands were kissed by angels. Yeah. That guy. Like looking at that bit he just made, like I wanted to slap him in the face because I was resenting. <laughs> I wanted to before he made the bit. Uh, yeah, I was he like, just has a face you want to slap. Yeah. I was like, man, we could do a smash and grab right <laughs> yeah. here at the Cowboy Museum at Elko, grab his bit and run. <laughs> but uh but the thing that I'm good at, that I know my, what my true calling is, and I know it's my true calling because it fulfills me and gives me a sense of purpose, is helping people. Yeah, come on. That's where I, that's 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 where I'm set at, and that's where a life of service, a life of service. Yeah, and that's where my life is going now, and that's why you know I'm 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 still cowboying. I'm out in Montana. I'm on this ranch and cowboy and i'm helping my friends set up a. I just got a phone call from this guy and he he's like hey uh, they want me to consult on them starting this place which i was telling you about yeah. starting a sober living and they're like we got the money you got the know-how we want to do it the way you want to do it and they called me today and they said hey we uh i've been thinking about it and i don't want you as a consultant and i said okay hey man i get it you know i'm I can stay in Montana. I'm fine where I'm at. And he says, uh, I want you to be a partner. Come on. Like I, I want skin in the game. Let's do this. And, uh, and I agreed. 
And it's, you know, and that's what I want to do. That's, that's where I feel my sense of purpose. And it's, it's, it's funny how all these things that since I came open, since I became open to a message and since I became open to hearing help, even, even, and it, and it takes me a minute because trust me, that first phone call with you, when I went through that breakup is I want to kill her. I hate her. I hate the world and I'm mad and why me and blah, 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 and crying and all of it to like, man, thank you mm, to process. Thank you for that experience. Yeah. Like for all of it, you know, all like the list of stuff that is beneficial to me in my life and what I learned about myself and what I learned about what I want to bring to a relationship and what I mostly learned about what I did wrong and what I can do better. It was worth the whole thing. It was worth the whole Again, thing. Again, it's back to like the opposite of being a victim. It's, it, it, yeah. it empowered you. If you look at it that way, which most people don't, and I get why. Yeah. But I, I kind of, the, I want to circle back a little bit real quick. Um, the the life of service of giving back i think about this a lot like because i like you this is this is my life this is my purpose also is you know to try to give hope to the hopeless person or situation and that's very broad i understand that but i feel like that's why and it's I think what's powerful behind it is that if you've been as close to the line as you and I have, and you come back from it, it's like I, I say all the time, I'm like, how dare I not spend the rest of my life trying to give away that's been so freely given to me? Well, and, and here's the thing that's funny. Because it's like it comes from this out of this place of gratitude. Like when you, when I really dissect like the, you know, kind of the AA language of life of service, right? And it, and it's so much more than that. It's like, I just feel so grateful when I wake up and look at my wife every morning and have these kids and all that I feel like God's like brought back to life that once was dead and in my life, like I have so much gratitude for what almost wasn't of being on the line that it's more than just a life of service. It's like, I want to engage with this with all of my heart and soul out of like the beauty that we get to see the world through now and to look back and see the versions of our younger selves. Like we've got to see all weekend and be like, Please hang in there because it, it gets better. And there's nothing more fulfilling seeing someone who called you in the darkest place of yeah, life. Yeah, that's it. And you maybe touch their life just a little tiny bit and you see them getting married and building a life and doing stuff. And there's nothing more fulfilling than that. And the crazy part is whenever something bad happens to us, when we lose a job or a relationship ends or, you know get bucked off and get hurt or get hit by a truck or whatever happens, dog bites us. And was, why, why did this happen to me? And as alcoholics, all anything is like end of the world scenario. Well, doomsday yeah, doomsday cannot scenario. regulate any emotion. So, so we're always asking ourselves why, 
why did I have to grow up without a dad? Why did my mom have to be this? Why, why, why? Like the why matters. The why never matters. But we never ask ourselves, why did I get this chance at life? Why did I get this second chance? Or fifth or sixth. Or, or, or hundredth yeah. and fifth. Yeah. You know, why did I get this? And these guys didn't. I mean, I got a laundry list of people I can tell you yeah. who, who, who've, who have not made it. Which you know? is kind of the fuel to this fire of what we're trying to do, right? Yeah. And it's like, whoever it is and whatever grace was bestowed upon me or blessing was bestowed upon me to have this sense of freedom from drugs and alcohol and to be able to grow and have this family, like, obviously I'm here to do something with it, you know? So we share it kind of like it's the same process as it's really no different from a blacksmith who's gifted with the i i was gonna say davidson i'm so sick of him let's let's talk about his his head gets so i mean did you ever notice whenever you say his name you can physically see his his head his hat gets smaller he couldn't even take his hat off last i know stuck on there but peep peep you know, it's the same thing as passing on that knowledge. Because <clears throat> if you're quiet about it, and I'm quiet about it, and if this guy's quiet about it, and she's quiet about it, and you know, she's quiet about it, and this quiet, and everyone's quiet about it, and we all keep it to ourselves, it dies, and no one gets it. Yeah. And then that's it. You know. So it's it's kind of our duty as people who've gotten this gift of sobriety, because it truly is a gift. Oh yeah. Cause not everyone to share it. Not everyone makes it. Not everyone gets it. The lucky ones die. The lucky ones die. The unlucky ones live that groundhog day life. Yeah. Over <clears throat> and <throat> over and over. Terrifying. And over. It's terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. I, I, you know, people always say, Oh man, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. For me, that is not true. I had um, some good old times. Yeah. Let me tell you, I got I got drunk as a skunk with Dickie Betts one night, and it was the funnest time of my life. And he had the best cocaine I've ever done in my life. But we had a great time. And going through the pain of my brother committing suicide while I was sober that was not better than my, but I will say this, my worst day sober is better than my last day of drinking. There, That's it. I, I liked how you framed that because sometimes some of that stuff doesn't really fit to ring true for everyone. No. And how you just said that, that was, but that my, was good. Yeah. My last day. So. Well, dude, like I, I know this, I don't know a lot, but my life is better with you in it hundred percent. And he, he, here's the cool thing about, remember when, when you're contemplating sobriety for the first time and you talk yourself out of it very quickly, cause that's about a 30 second thought. And you're like, I will never have fun again. I will never be able to talk to a girl again. My friends will hate me. I will be in isolation. You know, that 30 second contemplation of like, yeah. that's a snapshot of what my life will look like if I try sobriety. Dude, 
if nothing else out of this conversation, it's to give hope in that it does get harder before it gets better. But the the beauty of this life cannot be seen through a haze. Yes. And you don't get real brotherhood like you and I have and get to lock arms for something bigger than yourself. Cause you and I can't fix anybody. No. Right. It gets better. It It, gets more. Life does get better and it gets more beautiful and you get to experience things that you, that you never did when it's hazy. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's always easy. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It, it gets harder until you get the tools to figure out how to regulate your emotions with a clear head, right? Yeah, but nothing easy is ever worth it. Anyway. Nothing. That's what my dad always said. You know, and it's and and the good news is, I think I think the big news that this podcast brings is that you know, not only do you not have to do it alone, but you can't do it alone. There it is. We just, that I was, uh, this might be a bit of a shameless plug too, but we just named the, the, uh, thing we're doing in, in, in Bend, Oregon. And he, he, was, he said, think of a name. And I go, I want to call it the Ben recovery collective. Mm, I like that. Because a collective is something that you do as a group, because that's how we do this. We have to do it as a band of brothers. You know, we have to do it together. We we cannot do it alone. Well, we tried and it didn't work. We tried. It just doesn't work. And we're here. And I'm, man, I, I know you people, people call you from your website, cold calling you from your website, you know, and it, it's sometimes just a, just a, a warm voice on the other end of the phone, man, is like, it's enough. Like wh- whoever's listening to this, you do not have to do it alone. Like there's plenty. I'll, I'll help you, man. I'll go from hell to breakfast to help you, you know? You will too, and it's like I'm. I'm more. You know, we're not going to do it for you, but we'll do you it can't. with you. Yeah, you know, that's a good way to put it. Well, yeah. dude, thank you so much. I love you, brother. I love it's you. It's been and an honor, man. I'm. I'm glad we finally got to do. We this. got about 15 minutes before we got to regroup and <laughs> head over into the the, panel. the next room and do the panel. And right. it's an honor to get to fight arm in arm with you in in this battle of trying to help anybody that needs it. And again, this is the message of hope from a couple of freaking knuckle draggers who almost yeah. didn't make it out alive. And here we are getting to tell stories of hope and redemption and it's possible. And I like how you said it's not easy, but you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to. Do yeah. It alone. So, all right, guys. Um, thanks for, thanks for having me, bro. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. Love you, man. Thanks, guys. Adios for now. Hey, guys. I thought uh, Brian Bird and I would jump on here after this guy's story that you just listened to. And I think probably most people, Brian, don't know the depth of what Wild Courage is and how much more we are outside of just a podcast. Yeah, most people probably just think Wild Courage is just this podcast and just these stories. But in actuality, we're much more. We send guys to retreats. We host, I think we just talked about 2,500 guys have been in this barn right here in Emmett, Idaho. And for around fires. And for, 
for the listeners out there, um, it's been an incredible journey in which we have been able to hear stories from guys who've not only sat in their pain and seen others, but now they're starting to want to get help. They're going on a journey to find healing from counselors and coaches and it's really asking us to form a partnership. Yeah, that's that's kind of what's been the greatest joy, I think, of for us is to get a partner with some of these guys because, let's face it, a lot of guys out there, blue-collar working guys, don't have insurance um, and can't afford to go to counseling because, as everyone knows, a good counselor starts at 150 bucks an hour, right? That's right. And I think one thing that the podcast has done is getting guys to be able to get to a place in their own journeys or where they're like, man, I really actually do need help and being vulnerable and talking about my emotions and about what's going on in my life is actually I'm finding healing in it around these fires. And a lot of us, this is great once or twice a month, but we need to go on a much deeper journey. And that includes getting help, professional help that we are, we are not. Right. And the cool thing about wild courage now that most folks don't understand is we're at actual nonprofit now, an official yeah. nonprofit with a board. Last year, we sat around and some of our partners said, hey, you need board members. It's time to get official. I want to get behind you guys. And today we can say we are. Yeah, we've taken the next step in getting all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. And we have a legit board that is very well versed in their lane and bring a lot to the table, which gives us great confidence in this conversation of, look, we are much bigger, more than just a podcast. And this past year, we've got to send guys to get help and, and cover their expenses for going to counseling. We've, what, what, we've sponsored guys to go to retreats that couldn't afford to go. And there's no shame in that, right? No shame at all. And guys that have told us that before sitting around a fire, there's no way in hell they ever would have went and got help, got counseling. You know, I just remember a guy named Joe. Um, we paid for part of his cost for counseling. He said he wanted to go. He saw a counselor once a month for 12 months. And while Courage got to pay $600 of it, and Joe paid $600. We split the cost. And the results are simple touch point. Marriage saved. Kids are talking to him. He's cleaning up his mess. You know, if we took the same example and paid $1,200 counseling costs for the year for 25 men, it'd be about $30,000. Which and is we, our goal. Which is our goal. For this year. If we, if we send 50 guys to counseling and split costs, it'd be 60000 So it's pretty simple. Um, and the big, you know, 2024 ask is help us help the men. You know, we're going to change the world one healed man. That's right. At a time. One healed man equals one healed marriage. One healed marriage gives permission for the kids to watch and see their dad put in the work that values them the most versus the job, the addiction, the other thing. That's yeah. powerful. It's it's fun to see some of these guys that are local that we've got to help and to see their lives change and to get to be a part of that and partner with them and making that happen is one of the coolest things we've ever got to do. And on top of that, 
um, we're starting to talk to some different rehabilitation centers and partnering with them and sending some guys that have that need to go to rehab. And the same thing, maybe they're cowboys and loggers and outdoorsmen and, and live in rural America and they have no access to that and not even finding a good fit for them. So that's part of the things that we're putting our hands to right now is to find the right fit for some of these guys to get the help that they need and to help cover the expense of that, which is, I think, again, the coolest thing we could ever get to do. Yeah, it's a total dream of ours. And, you know, we we're just talking, Jeremy, where'd you start your journey? At rehab. At rehab. Yeah. 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 What could it what could it be like if we can send fifty guys who have a desire to get on the journey of being wholehearted and healed to rehab to start their way home? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of great organizations, Brian, that um raise awareness for things. And I think our, our what we do with Wild Courage is we're not afraid of the mess. That's what we do really well. Yeah. Of sitting with guys in their pain and so we want to take the awareness a whole step further and actually get into the process of getting guys the help that they need. And again, a lot of guys can't afford to to do that. And it, it, it really bothers me that getting help is, is kind of held for the people that can afford it. And there's a, there's a whole community of men in all different walks of life out there that are in the latter of those two things that they just can't afford to go. So um, I think in full transparency too, Brian, as far as the, our nonprofit goes, none of us take a wage, no board members. We we do all of this. We all have jobs and own businesses and um, we we do all of this in the margin. And so your money will be going towards what we're actually saying it's going to go towards because the podcast, um, you know... No, nobody gets paid. Nope. We're not doing this for the money. No, no. We're doing it for the healing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, come partner with us. It's just, if you listen to the podcast, if you're a longtime listener, I mean, how many downloads did we just hit, Jeremy? Oh, uh, we just passed 50,000, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and how many countries? And surreal. What was it, like 77? 77 countries. And we say that with, with, uh, with, the most humble hearts. It's crazy. It's been a journey of learning and getting reps, as I say. And, you know, if you listen to Jeremy for a while, he's getting better and better. It's been a pleasure. Uh, oh, thanks, man. To see, to see you grow. It's still scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you know, if we can send, partner with us, we want to send 25 guys to counseling, to the coaches. And we have lots of good partners out there. Britton Collins listening. He's one of them. We have a whole crew of people, of counselors that are great, that are um, accredited and proven. And um, we, you're going to hear some of these stories of guys who've worked with Britton in the future podcast. They're getting yeah, and they have in the past too, guys that have been on. And yeah. So thanks guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast and supporting us in all the different ways and, and subscribing and sharing and all the things that everyone tells me we're supposed to do. <laughs> Uh, on on the podcast to help spread the word of of hope. And that's the whole point of all of this. Right on. Amen. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.